Welcome to the Sharing Life Ministries Sermon of the Week. We hope that you were blessed by this message from Pastor Lawrence Romali. So, Father, I thank you for new vision this morning. Release it this morning, God, that we would see that you have more. You have more for us because what have we, we have stepped into? We have stepped into you. And I pray above all this morning that everyone here this morning, God, would walk through this day seeing the fresh picture of our life in you. Give us a new vision today, God, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Good morning. 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 You know, Susan and I were talking a little bit yesterday just about the events of two years ago and the first time I came down here. And uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, God had given me, he'd planted on my heart a desire to someday go into full-time ministry and, and then told me at a point that it would be in five years, which it was exactly. But my first vis- visit down here, uh, I was just beginning to look at where I could go and go into full-time ministry. And trying to listen to the Lord and I remember driving down here and it was frightening it was frightening and I pulled into this parking lot and walked in not knowing where to go and stumbled up the stairs (laughs) literally and and it was frightening Uh, in in my life I've lived in one state New Jersey I had one one full-time job One full-time job. And then I'm leaving all of that for this new adventure. And it was frightening. But sometimes we have to do that frightening thing to go see what God wants us to do. So it's been a ride. (laughs) And uh, so much... So much has happened in this past two years. It's really been unbelievable. Really been unbelievable. So I just praise God for all that he's done. And if he's packed all that into two years, what's the next two years going to look like or whatever? Um, So, yeah, it's it's been good. We're going to continue... The series that I had started, we're looking at verses that are misinterpreted, misused, um, hard to understand, taken out of context. Our call is is 2 Timothy 2.15, to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. God gives us his word He has a meaning for it. We can't put our own meaning on his word. It takes a little bit of work, but it's good. Today we're looking at Revelation 3.20, which reads, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. How many of you have heard that verse before? Okay, good. We hear that verse, 
uh, it's familiar to us because we see it used all the time on evangelism tracks. It's like the favorite evangelism track verse. The tracks portray Jesus as standing at a door that has no doorknob, calling out, open the door to your heart that I might come in. Please. It reduces Jesus to this weak, pleading form of God who's desperate for you to accept him. And that's not the case. Nothing is further from the truth. Jesus made a way for us to be reconciled to him. Amen. It's about his accepting us, not our accepting him. And when we look at salvation as our accepting Jesus, then we have this tendency to come to him on our terms. All right, I'll do this, but I'm going to continue to do that because this is about me and how I'm relating to you rather than you, Lord, and how you relate to me. We come to God on his terms, not ours. So we'll look at some of the tools that we learned about, how we dig into this verse, what it indeed means. So the genre of this verse is anyone yeah, it's a hard one. It's one we haven't looked at before. It's apocalyptic prophecy. Who's speaking? No. Jesus. Jesus is speaking. Who's writing? John. And the person speaking, Jesus, it's the glorified Jesus. It's the glorified Jesus. Who's it written to? It's written to the servants of Jesus Christ. That's us, but specifically to the seven churches. Do we understand the glorified Jesus? We will. Okay. So there are seven actual churches that are mentioned here. And it begins by, Revelation begins with this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So understand that near to God is different than near to us, and soon is different to God than soon is to us. Indeed. Because it's 2,000 years later, and it's nearer and it's sooner but not like we want to think about near and soon. So the key words that stand out in this, it's important is first, I, which we know is, means Jesus, but door, knock, and eat. I stand at the door and knock. What does that mean? And I desire to come in and eat with that person. 
So John, in writing this, Jesus in speaking it, he's using a literary device of imagery. He's given us an image. Obviously, we're not talking about a literal door. He's given us this image of a door to to, uh, show us what he's talking about. And if we look at some other translations of scripture, the NIV says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Pretty much the same. The Amplified says this, Behold, I stand at the door of the church and continually knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, restore him, and he with me. It's a little bit different, a little expands it a little bit, and we get a better idea of the purpose, the message, what Jesus is saying in this scripture. That it's not written to the unbeliever, it's written to the church. Does this verse contain a word that says that we need to go back? Well, it's a new one. Behold. Behold. So he's speaking about something that says, behold, which means to observe, look, see. It's part of an ongoing conversation. Apocalyptic Uh, prophecy and literature is very different from anything else. It's filled with imagery, with correction, with warnings. It's a prophetic writing that comes, that speaks of the coming final triumph of good over evil. This book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, is a vision that the Apostle John had while praying in the Spirit on Lord's Day. We should all pray in the spirit like that, right? And it's important to see that when Jesus, when John sees Jesus in this vision, he falls at Jesus' feet as if he were dead. And it doesn't say that Jesus says, Hey, John, it's me, Jesus. How are you doing? He doesn't say that. Because John saw The glorified Jesus. And today's church has become far too casual with Jesus. We've made him fit into our everything is okay, it's all good culture. Listen to Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 20. And hear how the Apostle John, who walked with Jesus for three years, saw him. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, and those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In John's vision, Jesus reveals what's happening and what's about to happen how the ultimate triumph of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords will come about. And the church is warned to get ready. Much of Revelation is is difficult to understand because John wrote about things that he saw and he didn't have the words, he didn't have the words for some of the things he saw. He could only describe it using the words and the understanding that he had. The beginning of Revelation, it's a little bit easier to grasp. Jesus dictates to John letters to be given to seven churches. They're actual churches, not buildings, but communities of believers. There were other churches. But these seven represent uh, conditions found in all churches. Get that? These letters, they represent conditions, or they, they represent churches that we can find everywhere around us. We need to take a careful look at ourselves to know who we are as a church, where we stand. While our verse today is written to one church in particular, it's hard to take that out of context without looking at all of them. And we're going to do an overview of that. Jesus has given a warning to his church. Sadly, we tend to ignore these warnings. We focus on the imagery in Revelation. We focus on what we don't understand in Revelation. That's what we want to be about. Explain this part. Well, here's a huge part that you do understand that you're ignoring. Deal with that. And as you deal with that, and as these things begin to happen, they will begin to be clear. We get all excited about Jesus coming back. But Jesus is warning us to get right with him before he shows up. He's calling his church up. But the church has been slow to listen. The seven churches, if you put up the map, oh great, perfect. The seven churches that John is about to write to are all in present-day Turkey. They're represented by the red dots on that map, as is Jerusalem, 
and the island of Patmos, where John has been exiled to. Each church's letter contains instructions and a promise. All but one church is commended. All but one church is commended. And all but two churches are criticized. It's easy to look at these letters and think that, uh, think of present day churches, of course, not ours, that match the criticism that Jesus gives. It's easy to want to award ourselves all the commendations. But that's just not accurate. It's just not accurate. Even though it's going to rain today, I don't want to spend the time and read all of every letter. But we're going to do an overview of each one. And then we're going to take and read deeper into the two letters, two of the letters that mention a door and see what it means. I found this chart to help give us an overview of each letter. Take some time at home in this coming week and read this passage again. Listen to the message again. It's on podcast. Listen to it again. That first three chapters of Revelation are important for our church. They're important for each of us as individuals. Revelation chapter 2 begins with a letter to the church in Ephesus. Perhaps you remember the church in Ephesus from when we um, looked at Timothy and the passage that says that women are to be silent. That was the church in Ephesus. Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for their good works, for their patience, for their perseverance. They have tested and rejected false prophets, but they abandoned the love that they had at first. They've gotten comfortable, lackadaisical. Jesus calls them to repent. He says, get on fire. Pursue me like you once did. Think about when you first got saved. Do you still love Jesus like you did then? Are you still pursuing him like you did then? Is your prayer life stronger now than it was then? Or your time in the word? He says, don't forget your first love. He says, if you don't, if you don't, then your lampstand will be removed. In other words, you will no longer be identified as one of my churches. If you do repent, you will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. When a church loses its love for Jesus, it will also lose its love for people. It will become critical, judgmental, hard-hearted. The message here is that truth and love go hand in hand. We cannot just speak truth in a proud, judgmental way. And we cannot just love, love, love. We're called to speak truth in love. And we need the Spirit of God in order to do that. And if we don't, our place as a church will be taken away 
It seems harsh, but it gets better. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 8, begins a letter to the church in Smyrna. The city of Smyrna had a large Jewish population that persecuted the church. Jesus commends them for suffering for his sake, but encourages them to do so gratefully, gracefully, not with bitterness or with resentment. I don't think that's what we expect from God, what we expect from the Lord when we're suffering or being persecuted. We want him to take the persecution away. And he says, endure, but do so gracefully. Don't be bitter. Don't be resentful. Due to persecution, this church is materially poor, but spiritually wealthy. Jesus has no criticism of this church, but warns them that some will be jailed, some will face death. Jesus tells them not to fear, but instead to be faithful, and they will receive the crown of life. This is the persecuted church in our day. We hear of it in China and North Korea, parts of Africa, Turkey, the Middle East, and other places. Jesus encourages them, don't be fearful, but remain faithful. He is with them. Chapter 2, verse 12 begins the letter to the church in Pergamum. Pergamum was known for its pagan practices. Jesus says that Pergamum is where Satan's throne is. Jesus commends the church that many have been faithful to him. But some in the church, some, worshipped and served false gods. And the church as a whole made moral compromises, tolerated immorality, and false teachings. Get that? He's pointing out. There have been moral compromises in your church. You've tolerated immorality. Don't we do that? Some practice the teachings of the Nicolaitans, who had an if it feels good, do it, or God just wants you to be happy philosophy or theology. So it's all about pleasure. There was blatant sin in the church, and it wasn't being addressed. They began to look like the world. We see this today as churches have lowered their standards from biblical teachings to worldly teachings. Looking the other way, allowing sinful lifestyles to uh, spread through the church as though they're normal and acceptable to God. Our culture doesn't change the word. God's word changes. God's word changes the culture, beginning with the culture of the church. Jesus told them to repent, to turn back to him, and if they did, they would receive hidden manna, spiritual nourishment, and receive a stone with a new name, meaning a clean slate and a new identity in Christ. Verse 18 begins the letter to the church in Thyatira. Thyatira was a wealthy city. Jesus commends them for growing in love, service, and faith, 
But some in the church there were following a false prophet, actually a prophetess, who was leading some astray to practice sexual immorality. She taught that the church should participate in worldly passion so to be able to relate to unbelievers. Wow. So it would be the go out and drink or party like the world does so that you can then share the gospel with an unbeliever or worse. Or worse. That when we participate in worldly passions, it helps us to be able to relate to unbelievers. In other words, if we want to influence people to attend our church on Sunday, we should party with them on Saturday night. And there's people that do that. We've had hard conversations with people that do that. It hasn't ended well. Because the truth is, they love their partying on Saturday night more than they love spending time with Jesus on Sunday. <clears throat> this false teaching infiltrates the church today. It's all over. The compromised church quickly becomes a corrupted church. The false prophet had refused to repent and Jesus encourages the church to repent and stop following this false teacher. Jesus warns them that judgment is coming. Repent, stay faithful. Judgment is coming. Those that do will receive authority to rule over nations and will triumph over death. Chapter 3, verse 1 begins the letter to the church in Sardis. Jesus tells them that they outwardly appear alive, but they are spiritually dead. They are a dead church. Can you imagine receiving that assessment of your church from God or as a person? You appear alive. In other words, you're going through the motions. You're walking around with your Bible. You have a perfect attendance pin for Sunday school. But inside, you're dead. Sardis was a grateful, uh, greatly fortified city that had suffered two surprise attacks from enemy forces for which they were unprepared. They relied so much on their walls to protect them, on the fort to protect them, that they didn't bother guarding it. And as a result, they were overtaken by enemy forces. Jesus tells them to repent or they will not survive when he comes like a thief in the night. The inhabitants of Sardis had found gold lying in the river, riverbed near the city. This produced great wealth for them. But when the gold ran out, they just lived on their reputation. That's a picture for us. The gold ran out. They just lived on their reputation as a prosperous city 
even though they were no longer prospering. It would be like getting saved, no longer pursuing Jesus, no longer reading your word, no longer being in prayer or in fellowship in a church and relying on your reputation of that testimony at a baptism 20 years ago to sustain you. In the same way, a church can live on its reputation. Full of the Spirit, great love for Jesus when it was founded many years ago, but now, not so much. They may be active and have lots of programs, but are just full of ritual and complacency. Jesus says that there are some who have remained faithful to him in this church. They have not soiled their garments. They will be clothed in white and will walk in with him. Their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. They are a faithful remnant in an otherwise dead church. And chapter 3, verse 7, begins the letter to the church in Philadelphia. This is the first of two letters that mentions a door. Philadelphia had a strong Jewish community that persecuted Christians. Jesus offers no criticism to this church. Rather, he condemns those who persecute it. He commends the church for remaining faithful in their weakness and encourages them to stay faithful. If they do, he will keep them from the coming trial and they will be strong pillars in heaven in the temple of God. They will receive new names and they will forever reside in God's holy city, the new Jerusalem. In verses 7 and 8 we read, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. The door represents relationship relationship with Jesus and his relationship with us, his church. The keys are authority. Jesus has the authority. He's the only one. He has the authority to open and shut doors or to initiate or end relationship. Jesus is telling the Philadelphians that Relational intimacy with him will never be denied to them. The door to the holy place where Jesus dwells is always open and will always be open. This is the prize awarded to a church that perseveres in their faith, that faithfully keeps the word of Christ and faithfully honors the name of Jesus. They're alive. They're alive, full of the Spirit, faithfully following the Lord Jesus, faithfully sharing their faith, faithfulness, they're alive. It's not about numbers or programs or a building. This is about obeying, worshiping, 
loving Jesus. Wow. Wow. The church, the church in Philadelphia. Yeah. And not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. No. The whole church of Philadelphia, God just, Jesus praises them. Chapter 3, verse 14, begins our last letter. It's written to the church in Laodicea. Laodicea was a very prosperous, very wealthy city. It was known for the production of clothing. It was known for being a great financial center. It was known for producing a medicinal eye salve. But despite its wealth, despite its wealth, it was also known for having lukewarm water. The neighboring city of Heropolis was known for their hot springs, which were used medicinally. Another neighboring city of Colossae was known for their cool, refreshing spring water. By the time any of that made it to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It was basically worthless. Lukewarm water neither tastes good nor feels good. Have you ever attended uh, a wedding or some kind of a banquet where you find your table and there are glasses of water sitting there? The ice melted, the water lukewarm. There is nothing desirable about that. You might take a sip because you're thirsty, but it's not like a nice cold glass of water. Refreshes. There's nothing desirable about lukewarm water. Listen to the words of Jesus. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Laodicea was indifferent. They were neither hot nor cold. They were apathetic. In other words, they were half committed. They thought they were rich, when in fact, they were poor. They thought they were well clothed, when in fact, they were half naked. They thought they could see, when in fact, they were blind. All the things that brought prominence and strength and stature to their city that they saw as a benefit. And Jesus says, in the spirit, these are all places that you are wretchedly poor and weak. Verse 8, 17 and 18 say this, For I say to you, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. They lived in a rich community. They were known for their wealth. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel, to you, counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, true gold, so that you may be rich. White garments, they were known for their clothing industry. But he says, buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And they were known for the salve that they produced for eye problems. And he says, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may be able to see. For them to be able to truly see. The Laodiceans had deceived themselves. They were in serious trouble. The Laodicean church is the only church that did not receive any commendation. They thought they were good. When the truth was, they were anything but good. Jesus had nothing, nothing, nothing good to say about them. Jesus calls them to find their worth in him, not the world. This is a church living the good life, a sort of religious country club. They are a church and a people who are just as devoted to the world as they are to Jesus. Verses 19 and 20 say, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is expressing his love for them. They're indifferent. He says, repent and you will share my throne with me. But if you don't, I will spit you out of my mouth just as I would lukewarm water. We live in an indifferent, apathetic Society. People could care less about God. And most of them think they're okay with God. Because of some past event. Their indifference. Their indifference leaves them lukewarm. They don't care. 
And I speak with people all the time, all the time, that say, oh, yeah, yeah, I went to church when I was a kid, or I went to VBS, or I went to Bible camp. So, remember speaking to a man when I first got down here, I was with Pastor Susan, he says, yeah, I keep Jesus in my back pocket, and I pull him out whenever I need him. Yeah, I don't think so. That indifference, that casualness, that apathy, we see it all around us. We try to talk to someone about the Lord and try to share or try to witness, and they're like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. And imagine a church becoming like that. Just a gathering. It's just a gathering of people. It's a gathering that could take place in a social club or in a bar or in a church. It's just a gathering with no purpose, with no love, with no devotion. This is an important warning. Jesus is calling the, uh, those in Laodicea, the Laodicea, people of Laodicea. He's calling them back. He's saying, wake up. Wake up. You're, in effect, wasting your time thinking that you're doing well, but you're not. He's warning them because he loves them. I've come to your door in fellowship. Open the door. Invite me in. He's pursuing them. Picture inviting someone to dinner, but never letting them come into your home. It's in effect what they've done. Picture a church that meets regularly, yet ignores Jesus or ignores his word. Not wanting to offend anyone. Not wanting to turn from their flesh. More concern about attendance or a budget than they are with Jesus. Jesus provides the Laodiceans with this illustration that they have shut him out. If they earnestly repent, they'll share his throne. To be earnest is to burn with zeal, with passion. If not, they'll be cast away. They'll find themselves separated from Christ by a door that they themselves have built. All the time, people say, well, why would God send people to hell? Why would a good God send people to hell? He has done absolutely everything, everything, so that no one has to go to hell. Everything. We've shut the door in Jesus' face. No, thank you. I don't need that. This is what Revelation 3.20 speaks of. A church without Christ, self-deceived, 
believing that they're walking in favor because of their abundance, Jesus will not force himself into his own church. The knock that comes from Jesus is a warning. It's a warning. When you hear a knock at a door, what do you do? You quickly sit up, you look, you're alarmed. The dog starts to bark. Someone's at the door. It's Jesus. Well, you best let him in. You best let him in. And if some of you believe that great works and miracles are evidence that Jesus resides in the church, well, that warning is found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is heaven, in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. It speaks of relationship. All of these churches, except the church in Smyrna, the persecuted church exists in the United States. Resist thinking, thinking of churches that match the various descriptions. Instead, persevering in pursuing Christ as you first did, in rejecting sin and evil, of having no tolerance for immorality, of being separate from the world. Follow Jesus not charismatic men and women. Reject indifference. Continually feed your spirit from the word and grow in community so that you won't suffer and die from spiritual malnutrition. And most of all, be sure that you're not lukewarm and of no worth to the Lord. Jesus told the church at Thyatira that judgment was coming soon. Waste no time pursuing him as you first did. You are the church. Together, we are the church. If Jesus wrote a letter to the church in Ridgely, what would he say? What would he say? Look at your own heart and repent while there's time. Let the renewed fire in your heart encourage others. As your pastor, it's my responsibility to be first among you in each of these areas. And I'm privileged and blessed to have a a partner in Pastor Susan who has a like mindset. A heart to pursue Jesus. If you feel Holy Spirit speaking to you right now, convicting you, calling you deeper, then come forward and confess and repent before the Lord. And speak with myself or Pastor Susan. And join us in running deeper after Jesus. In opening the door of our hearts, our souls, our spirits. And as we do, as we do that, we will be a church with a door that no one 
can shut. And let that be our prayer. Not that door that's closed to Jesus, but that door that's wide open that no one can shut. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that your spirit would be convicting us right now of those areas where we either individually or corporately are lukewarm, where we've forgotten you, where we've pursued the world, where we have allowed immorality and and, um, ungodliness to creep into our lives. Convict us of those areas that we're complacent, where we just were indifferent. And Lord, we also ask that you would just show us those areas in our life that we are walking in obedience, that you're pleased with the commendations. They would encourage us. And Lord, we desire to have a church like the Philadelphians, a church that you're pleased with, a church that's chasing after you with all its heart, church that's passionate, that's hot. And Lord, we can't do that on our own. We get too easily distracted. So Holy Spirit, show us, guide us, direct us, that we would be spiritually wealthy, clothed in white, eyes to see, that we would be rich in you beyond measure. We thank you. We thank you that you come and warn us, you come and show us, you're knocking. We pray for churches in this area that that they too, that they too would wake up, pursue you like they never have before because you're coming soon, whatever that means. We want to be ready. So we thank you. We bless you for blessing us with your presence. Amen. Thank you for listening. Sharing Life Ministries is located at the Life Center, 48 West 2nd Avenue, Ridgely, West Virginia. Or follow us on Facebook.